she only lived a third of her life. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm expanding the speculative element and giving her multiple lives now in the book, saying mm. Alison in another context could have had this life. Alison in a historical context might have had this life. That was the voice of Atul Joshi, the guest on this episode of The Knowledge Mill. I'm your host, Greg Yoakum. A former classical musician, Atul Joshi is an arts and culture manager currently working for Bengara Dance Theatre. In this capacity, he has also worked for companies such as the State Theatre and State Opera of South Australia, Griffin Theatre Company, Sydney Philharmonia Choirs, and Bundanen Trust in senior management roles. He has also led government funding programs at the former Australia Council, now Creative Australia, and City of Sydney. Born in Myanmar of Indian parents, Atul migrated to Australia as a child. Returning to his own creative life later in his career, he completed a Master of Arts in Creative Writing at UTS in 2020. Since then, he has been shortlisted for the Saturday Papers 2020 Donald Horn and the Newcastle Writers' Festival 2022 Fresh Ink Prizes, had short fiction published in The Big Issue, Westerly, Island, Seizure, and Rice Paper Magazine, nonfiction in the Portside Review, Peril Magazine, Sydney Review of Books, and Benjamin Law's Growing Up Queer in Australia. His interest in the representation of queer lives and in the possibilities of creative nonfiction and auto-slash-biography led him to commence a PhD in creative writing at UTS focusing on queer memoir and biography. Atul and I share a passion for reading and writing, so our conversation came easily. I was especially intrigued by the manner in which his PhD project is being constructed around a creative component, quite different and, dare I say, a bit more intimate than completing a traditional thesis. I found it all very intriguing, and I think you will too. This episode of The Knowledge Mill was recorded in my office at UTS on September 18th, 2023. Show notes, including links to more information on some of the topics that Athul and I discuss, can be found at thenowledgemill.com slash episode 6. That's episode and the numeral 6. Hello, Athul. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You are doing a PhD entitled Beyond Trauma, Creative Nonfiction and Speculative Biography as Instruments of Queer Joy. Can you tell us how you found yourself doing this? <laughs> That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> um, it's a long story, and I guess we've got time, so I'll, I'll kick off. Um, I, um, oh, gosh, I started off life as a musician many, many years ago. I was a classical musician, um, and I got to a certain age where... Uh, playing music wasn't paying the rent, basically, and I didn't foresee that it would keep paying the rent uh, of any kind. So um, I transferred into a business degree and ended up spending most of my life working in what's called arts administration or arts management, which is basically working in the same cultural industry, but uh, working on the other side, mm. I guess, uh, managing people, managing finances, managing marketing plans, things like that. Uh, fast forward 20, 30 years later, uh, that creative side of me uh, re-emerged and I felt like there was a business that was undone in terms of me as a creative practitioner. And to a certain extent, I, by then I was getting a little bit um, uh, exhausted I'm not going to use the word tired because that sounds bad, but uh, exhausted with enabling other people's creativity, uh, uh, supporting other people, which, you know, which was a wonderful thing to do and which I've enjoyed very much doing and which I still do. Um, but 
there was a need that I felt that there was un, unfinished business on my part in terms of having my own creative expression. So I decided that I, I, I tried going back to music, but this was many years later and I... I felt like I had moved on from music and physically, you know, the instrument I played was trench horn. That's quite a tough uh, physical ask of a person. I no longer had those physical capabilities. I was much older and I guess my interests had also moved on. So I returned to another passion I had when I was much younger, which was writing. And I thought... I need to do this properly. I need to uh, set aside time and space to do it. And I enrolled in the Master of Arts in Creative Writing at UTS. Uh, That was about six, seven, eight years ago. Um, I was still working, so I did it part-time, and it took me about six, seven years to do it. Um, And I found myself having a a wonderful, wonderful experience doing it. I had uh, such a great time. I felt I, I, I had found my element, my métier, I guess, um, and I, I guess um, I was under the impression that, you know, it was a craft that you needed to learn, that it was something you needed to go through this academic program uh, before you could submit stuff out and become published and things like that. But to my surprise and to my delight, uh, my tutors encouraged all of us in the program to submit work as we were writing it through the course. And I found myself getting published mm. um, in short story journals, literary magazines, um, and so on. And that was great feedback for yeah. me, thinking, yes, I am doing something that I enjoy, <laughs> but something that other people think I'm uh, okay <laughs> yeah. at as well. And uh, I found this the workshop environment in a creative writing program where, you know, you work very closely with your colleagues and with your tutors and lecturers uh, in in honing your craft, in honing the pieces you write. I found that an incredibly initially scary experience, Mm. uh, thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to read this piece of writing in this group of people and be open to feedback and criticism but again it was a a really great experience uh, bar a couple of instances of not enjoying it uh, and thinking did you really say that to me (laughs) you know Um, but um, but all in all it was great so Mm. um, you know uh, I had a great time and I didn't want it to end when the course ended Uh, and I had a major project in mind by my final year of that program and you're required to write you know, more than just two, 3,000 words for that final year. At that time, I think the course has slightly changed since then. But over the course of the year, you have to produce 15,000 words mm. as your final kind of graduating project, I guess. Uh, and I started writing a story uh, which I knew quite Im- early on would be a book length, start, the start of a book length work. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to keep doing that book and I wanted to keep doing it within that kind of context as I thought at the time it within that kind of context um, and so it seemed logical for me to then progress on into the PhD program to actually use that uh, the, the the seeds of that project have turned into a fully fledged work mm. and I was very lucky in that the PhD program at UTS and in many universities now in the humanities uh, allows you to do a uh, what's called a PhD by creative practice, mm-hmm. 
where you create a major uh, creative work, whether it's a, a novel, a book uh, uh, of any kind, a film, uh, an art exhibition, a suite of artworks of some kind, which counts as your as your thesis, I guess, uh, which is your major work that you submit for uh, assessment uh, and as your your major work out of that candidature candidature. Um, accompanied by a, a much smaller theoretical, methodological, uh, what's called an exegesis, uh, which accompanies that major work. And b- between them, those two pieces of work, uh, you that's the work you submit for the PhD. And I thought that sounded like a great way of r- both writing the book, having that kind of support structure around me, mm. um, and, um, and in the process get a PhD as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, because I'm still working uh, and because I still need to pay the rent, which has always been uh, a factor of my life and many people's lives, I guess, uh, I'm, I'm doing it all part-time. Mm-hmm. So I guess uh, doing the PhD and re- receiving a research, Australian Government Research Scholarship, although it is a very small amount of money, uh, enabled me to take the time away from my full-time job at the time mm-hmm. uh, and cut it back to part-time work and do the PhD part-time as well. So that's how it all sort of fell into place over the last two, three years. Yeah. And and it sounds like it came together really nicely because that's, that's where a lot of people, uh, or at least here in the business school would supplement that uh, government funding by teaching or something. Mm. You were able to Mm. kind of have it both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's great. Yeah. Uh, Something that I'm, I found really confronting about the PhD when I started it is you go from, especially if you come out of coursework as I did, uh, you go from being one student in a tutorial of, or not a tutorial, but a lecture of a couple hundred, and then at a master's level, maybe one out of 90. And then yeah. you go from being one with three teachers. <laughs> so the, the ratio completely flips. And that's yeah. actually really, yeah. uh, like I said, confronting. But it sounds like you sort of had that experience already from uh, having to be vulnerable and put your writing out there and open to feedback. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, uh, when the when the lecturers were very good, they created very safe spaces for that to happen. And certainly during the master's program, we never had groups of ninety to a hundred people. The the most I think in a room would have been twenty people or so. Right. Uh, the the more usual would have been ten, twelve, fourteen, I think. Uh, but it's a, you know it's a different scale, but uh, it's still a very different relationship going from that kind of context where the, you're amongst a larger group of people mm-hmm. with one tutor or one. Uh, lecturer to be becoming a single person, yeah. like a single student with two or three supervisors. Yeah, um, it's, yeah absolutely different. And the relationship with that uh, pedagogue, I guess, uh, changes totally in that they sort of, you know, take the training wheels off you and yeah. let you fall, f- fly or fail mm, <laughs> and yeah. sort of guide you, I guess, in the <laughs> failure bits as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's because it seems to me like uh, if you're if your PhD and and thus the examination of the PhD is mostly related to this creative output, mm. Uh, mm. how do you feel like, is there any kind of, uh, are you uncomfortable with this at all? Or because it seems like there would be a, a lot of opportunity for bias or subjectivity mm. to kind of take over. Uh, how, how do you... That. In that creative work. Yeah, yeah, and assessing it and examining oh, it. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Um, I feel very supported uh, by my supervisory team at the moment, and I feel supported in, in knowing that 
is come out of a creative writing program and that UTS in particular still has a very strong creative writing mm. program. And I feel confident at uh, down the track when the, the rubber hits the road, I guess, that the, the team of assessors will have that in their mind and will come from that, at least partially from that world. Mm. But certainly in these first... Uh, stages of the PhD, uh, you know, there is an emphasis on, I guess, more critical rigour around it in that, you know, I'm just not left to dawdle uh, stories or write uh, fantasies or whatever, that there is an expectation that whatever I create or write will have some sort of critical theoretical bedrock underneath it. Mm -hmm. Um, So... That's involved a lot of reading and critical theory, uh, and because my work is very geared towards uh, 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 a queer queer kind of outlook on life, uh, a lot of reading and queer theory as well, mm. and and you know a lot of feedback has come from my supervisors and other people about well maybe you should read that maybe you should follow that kind of thinking and have you thought about this in terms of French philosophy or in queer theory or and things like that so, yeah right yeah I think there is an expectation that you're not just creating something willy nilly mm. but that you're creating something that arises from a body of work uh, in the humanities that already exists yeah, yeah right so in a way you are sort of you're finding your gap in the literature, as it were. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Through in this a case, creative literal method. literature. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's really interesting. So you, uh, how, how do you strike that balance then between something that I guess is theoretically sound, for lack of a better phrase, and wholly creative? Because that seems like it would be a tricky line to walk. Yeah, I, I guess because of what I'm writing, um, it's, uh, which is... Um, a biography of a trans person. Um, I guess you know trans uh, issues are very have been very much in in public discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been the subject of feminist studies uh, and feminist philosophy, and queer studies and queer philosophy as well. So, I, as a non-trans person myself, I feel I need to be uh, very much versed in those. Uh, those arguments, those discussions, to be able to represent a trans life, mm. uh, I think, uh, realistically, but also properly and ethically as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that mm. leads me to, because listeners would have heard a, a description of your work, but uh, that, that phrase, speculative biography, yeah. uh, this is what you're writing. Could you yeah. just tell us what's meant by speculative biography? And yeah. <laughs> I guess at, at its simplest is making things up. <laughs> <laughs> but making things up based on what you know, mm-hmm. so that you're not just pulling ideas out of the air. Uh, I guess, you know, there are, there are scholars of speculative biography, and by no means am I one. One at this point, uh, but it is saying there are lives that have existed that continue to exist where there isn't a great deal of records about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there isn't an archive of information about them, about the, the people. Um, and so where there are gaps in their lives, you are making your best guess, I guess, based on the, the history around them, the circumstances around them, uh, the, uh, what little facts you know about it to build a life mm. uh, using speculation, but speculation rooted in what could be real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it has had 
to do with historical biographies. So, you know, some of the leading scholars in this area have been writing lives of 19th century people, uh, you know, and the 19th century uh, biographies and histories don't feature a lot of women for particular, in, in particular. So there have been lives written about important 19th century women where there isn't a whole heap of public records about their lives. So they have written books about these women where they've made, I guess, the best estimate mm. uh, of what their life might have been or could have been. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And what's the, I guess, from a historical perspective, what's the value of doing that? Well, um, the value is uh, to, I guess, enrich our understanding that f- from the recorded archives, there are lives w- which have never been recorded, mm-hmm. that the archive is incomplete, that the archive is perhaps one-sided or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, and we could get into discussions about patriarchy and colonialism and yep. things like that. Yep. But, uh, you know, every life has some value and, and it needs uh, uh, lots of people who make contributions to society and to culture who whose contributions have not been captured mm. uh, in biography or in history. Uh, and this is some way of... Uh, completing the archive, redressing the balance. Mm. And certainly I feel very passionately and I find myself becoming uh, much more activist as I, as I progress along this project mm. that you know, trans lives are very much uh, like that. Yeah. That um, you know, there, there are some fantastic trans writers out there now, uh, but they speak of uh, mainly current contemporary lives. Yep. And we are... Uh, so much the better for being able for those lives to be told and to be documented and to be uh, to be disseminated. But you know, trans people have existed for many decades, many centuries, mm-hmm. um, uh, and the trans life I'm writing about lived her life in the early '80s to the early '90s, uh, and I feel there are. That that's an important period of history and mm-hmm. of uh, of a person's life to to tell, um, and um, yeah, that's what I'm hoping to do. It seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it's as much putting a face to a moment in history as it is filling in the blanks of the specific yeah. individual's life. Yeah. So the yeah. person I'm writing about was called Alison. Um, she came out as a trans person in 1980. Uh, and from 1980, uh, lived her life as a trans woman until she passed in 1992. That moment coincided uh, with uh, the the booming of the LGBTIQ scene in Sydney. She was a Sydney uh, person um, and she became a sex worker, then a showgirl on Oxford Street. Mm-hmm. So her life was absolutely parallel to what was happening on Oxford Street during the 80s when the nightclubs were, uh, you know, the places you went to uh, and were packed with people when the whole gay scene erupted, Mm -hmm. I guess, and Oxford Street became the golden mile uh, of the scene. It also, sadly, was the time of uh, the first wave of the HIV-AIDS epidemic. Right. And that's the uh, what she passed from in 1992. So her life captures all of that in a capsule. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Mm. Uh, and, and so you're also, in a way, as you were describing before, writing historical wrongs that these people have been absent from the mm. histories that we have. Yeah, yeah. This is, yeah, this is a... 
I would say a very noble project that you've undertaken. Well, it's it's noble. I, I'm, 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 thank you for saying it's noble. <laughs> I said it so you wouldn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> the intent, uh, the origins of the project wasn't noble. Um, mm. uh, it's uh, Alison is by extension a family member, uh, and I never knew Alison, but Alison is the youngest, uh, not the youngest, sorry, um, the oldest sibling of uh, someone in my extended queer family, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, uh, that family member in my queer family is the youngest brother of Alison. And um, I guess John, uh, and I, I, he doesn't mind me using his name, and Alison's the name of the person I'm writing about. The family are very supportive of this project. Mm. Uh, but every, all, ever since I've known John, uh, Alison's been part of our lives because he talks about Alison regularly. Uh, as someone that he looked up to. Uh, Alison was someone that guided him in his coming out journey. Um, yeah, so Alison's been part of, in that way, part of my our lives for mm. many years. And there was one moment, I guess, uh, a few years ago, I think it was the 40th anniversary of Mardi Gras, uh, every every decade, Mardi Gras has uh, you know a decade celebration, right. I guess, and they they uh, they put up a tribute to uh, uh, well known community figures that have passed at, at a certain moment at the, at the big party mm-hmm. after the parade. So on midnight, I think uh, at the fortieth anniversary, the uh, the tribute came up. The song "I Am What I Am," you know, about a hundred drag queens on stage sashaying around, singing, lip syncing, and singing, I guess, to the song and then they do a slideshow of people who who've um who've passed mm-hmm. and uh, uh, uh and you know particularly notable figures that they want to highlight so at this particular mardi gras allison's photo flashed up and i was there on the dance floor with john and john just you know went berserk and said look there's allison there's allison yeah, right. and I, I looked at him and i thought gosh you know this person means is means the world to john uh, and I, uh, and that's where the seeds of this project okay. came, uh, I guess. Um, and knowing every year on her birthday or at Christmas, uh, he he will go to her grave and lay flowers and pay a tribute of some mm-hmm. kind. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Mm. That's fantastic. I, I mm. think that's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, what's remarkable about Alison also is that when she came out as trans, she was 14 years old. Right. And this was in 1980 in Campbelltown. Mm -hmm. And Campbelltown, particularly Campbelltown, southwest Sydney, um, very poor area in the 70s and, you know, social housing area. Uh, Even so in 1980, I guess it's come up a a rung or two since then, Mm -hmm. but still very much a lower socioeconomic status. She was very brave to come mm. out in 1980 as trans, was bullied, was, you know, uh, bashed at times and, and ran away. And that's when she became a sex worker in the city. Um, but, and the family were aghast, of course, you know, thinking, oh, my God, you know, how has this happened? And, and she ran away. But a couple of years later, she came back and she was embraced by the family. And for the rest of her life, she... She, she, the family embraced her and she embraced the family. So she came back and continued to be a part of their lives, mm. but in a different gender. 
Um, right. And she would come back and pick up the kids. I mean, she was then only in her late teens, 17, 18, 19, I guess. And she would pick up the kids who were like 12, 13, 14 and take them back to Sydney during the school holidays. And they'd stay with her and they'd go and watch her do all her shows on Oxford Street. They'd sit in the, in the uh, green rooms behind the pub uh, and wait for her, go to all these house parties with her. Uh, John has memories of rolling joints in the in the green room for <laughs> Alison while he waited for her, things like that. So, yeah. I mean, it is it, in many ways is a remarkable story of um, acceptance and reintegration as well. To the extent that when she passed away, she, her uh, her mother brought the body back uh, and a cremate, and after the cremation, the ashes were buried with in the family plot with mm-hmm. the father and now with the mother as well. Yeah, yeah right. And so how far along in compiling this story of a life, yep. uh, you're drawing from family resources and stories yep. Yep. and historical reference yep. points as well. Yep. Where, where are you with this project? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, the family are incredibly supportive. They want this story told. They're delighted the story is being told. But um, uh, she, as I've mentioned, she lived a very short life. She was 26 when she passed mm. on. Um, I think it's true, I would say, that with a lot of queer lives, and I suspect with a lot of trans lives, there are lots of gaps in the life because there are ruptures in the life, you know, the rupture of coming out and becoming, a, you know, to, to all intents and purposes, to a lot of people who knew you before you came out, you become a different person or you become a different gender. Um, there are things that you hide. There are things you don't want to reveal about yourself. Mm-hmm. There are there are li- multiple lives that you lead as a queer person. I think it's true for you know probably a lot of people, but I, as a queer person myself, I think uh, of things that you might disclose to certain people, but you don't disclose to other people. Mm-hmm. There are uh, there's the notion of the queer family, the the family that you create, and there's your biological family. So her life is lived and known as a series of fragments like John's family knew her when she came back during school holidays or went for family celebrations but they didn't know much about her life on Oxford Street until they went to see her shows and things like that so um, I think I'm rambling a little bit and I've lost the point of your question no, but no, not at all no I, I guess yeah so I'm, I'm trying to pull these fragments together and within these uh, in, in between these fragments there are lots of gaps mm-hmm. and I guess that's where the speculation will come in mm-hmm. knowing what the Oxford Street scene was like at the time I can fill in a lot of the gaps knowing what clubs existed who did what shows mm-hmm. who were the big trans and drag personalities of the time and knowing all about uh, the AIDS HIV pandemic that was encroaching at the time and everybody's response to that. So there's a lot of contextual historical information I can use to fill in the gaps of her life. But for the actual facts of her life, I am relying on family interviews. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I said, uh, I'm speaking to all of the surviving family members. I'm tracking down the the trans people who knew her the closest uh, and interviewing them to get facts about her life. I'm digging through queer archives and uh, and the State Library for all any kind of direct or indirect information relevant to this story as well. Okay. Yeah. And so you're very much in the 
the research phase. Yeah, too. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I've done stage one now, where the you know the the project's accepted as a project mm-hmm. and as a candidature for the PhD. I am very much into archival information, and you know I've had many off the record conversations with a lot of people, but now they're on the record conversations, mm-hmm. uh, and you know going through all due ethical processes as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got you. Yeah. And so with because uh, you're at UTS here, uh, it's a three stage process so as you mm. said you've done stage one got the that's the confirmation of the candidature yep uh what are you aiming toward with stage two i would very much like to have and i'm doing this phd part-time so mm-hmm. uh everything seems incredibly stretched out so a three four year phd program stretches out to seven to eight years or mm-hmm. so so I, i'm coming to the end of year three so it still feels like there's a long way <laughs> ahead of me but i would love to get to stage two, which will be in a year and a half's time or so, thinking I've got a lot of the biography under my belt. Mm-hmm. Ideally, I would like to be able to say, here's the first draft. Um, uh, yeah, or uh, most of a first draft, so that the last third of the PhD, I guess, I can spend responding to feedback, editing, uh, reshaping as needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, right. Mm. And what is your. Obviously, it's an academic project at the moment, but you must mm. have some kind of vision for eventually publishing this and, and promoting it. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you? What impact do you see this this work having? Uh, I I hope it becomes. Uh, yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, it's always been my aim that this story would get published in some way or another. Um, in a book form would be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess you know it is. Uh, it, it probably won't change the world, who knows, but it is part of that project of filling in the gaps, I guess. You know, I hope my piece of work is another piece of the wider jigsaw or tapestry mm-hmm. of uh, lives that are lived and that are represented in some form uh, and that I fill in one one of those pieces or one of those gaps. Mm. Mm. I, I think that's what all academics are trying yeah. to do, you know, just yeah. move knowledge out that, yeah. nudge it out that little bit, except yeah. yours is very personal. You know, you're, you're filling in an actual yeah. historical blind yeah. spot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm also hoping that um, it it is, uh, you know, as I'm, I think I referenced a, a little while ago in what I was saying, it's become more and more a work of activism as mm-hmm. well. So where I started off just wanting to tell Alison's story and her life, the more I progress along it and the more I read into critical theory and queer theory uh, and this notion of this filling in gaps and filling in the archive comes to the fore, it's becoming more of an, uh, a work of activism as well. And I hope that it contributes to that kind of project as mm. well. And I guess one one of those aspects of one of those activist elements of the work as is as is progressed is become more than just Alison's life. And I'm really aware that you know many queer lives are cut short. Mm. Many trans lives, in particular, are cut short. Um, in her case, she died at 26, as I mentioned, and it's. There's that enormous potential, you know. Uh, you yeah. know had she lived to 70, 80, that's, she only lived a third of her life. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm expanding the speculative element and giving her multiple lives now in the book, saying, mm. Alison, 
in another context could have had this life. Alison, in a historical context, might have had this life. You know, the, all these possibilities of a life were curtailed uh, in yeah. her in the life that she actually lived, but they all exist as possibilities. Mm. Um, so it beca- I'm expanding out into queer parallel universes, I yeah, guess. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. That, and, and by doing so, hopefully making a very gentle point about, mm. um, uh, about how, how um, queer lives are treated and how they, they unravel and unfold over time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and what's lost. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting what you say about uh, the deeper you go into the research, the more you feel like an activist. Mm, mm. Uh, I've had a I've had a similar thing in my work in mostly I research in sport management, yep. and I'm very passionate about working toward gender equity in yeah. that space. Yeah, but I'm also very conscious, uh, and it's something actually that I've spoken about in other episodes of this podcast. I'm very conscious that I have to be careful and intentional in the way that I try to contribute, being a a, a white cisgendered male, mm, uh, mm. you know, it, it could be, I don't want to go about it the wrong way. Uh, yeah, I really yeah. just want to help. Yeah. Is that because you were noting that uh, you're having to, I guess, kind of take an academic approach to researching yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the communities that you're hoping to yeah. Yeah. serve. Yeah. Uh, have you had anything similar, like where you, you realize the, the more you find out the, the more you realize you don't know what you don't know or <laughs> yeah well it's, it's more I guess you know I, I I just echo what you said about you writing what you're writing as a cis male I'm writing as a, a trans story as a cis male and I'm really 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 conscious about that mm-hmm. and I do not want to take voices away or uh, uh, or take opportunities away from trans people to say their own stories to uh, to be have the opportunity to do that um, and I I've it's it's been something that has preoccupied me, but uh, but I feel that you know Alison's no longer here to tell her story, mm-hmm. uh, so I feel like I've, I sh- I I should step up uh, and tell her story on her behalf, and I feel empowered to do that by her family, um, by uh, by the fact that I'm a queer person as well, but. Not just because, because I'm not just telling a trans story. I'm hopefully I'm telling a bigger queer story, and yeah. as a queer person, I feel empowered to be able to do that. Mm. I don't think I'm self-justifying in saying all of that, but it has been a, a process of careful thinking and formulation, yeah. and aware of my responsibility in that regard. Yeah. I, I don't think you're self-justifying. I think I mean that's the question that I was asking: is that you're you're going into? It, it's very easy. Uh, to do more harm than good if you're not careful and, and you don't go in with that best of intention. Hmm. Uh, so that, that was my, yeah. my question basically yeah. uh, is how yeah. that's unfolded for you because ultimately allies, allies are needed and, and allies can't just be members of the same community sure. or intersection or whatever, however you want to define it. Sure. Uh, but I think sometimes there is an over eagerness. Not, and I wasn't trying to say that that's the case for you. It was more just a- asking how you avoided that. <laughs> yeah, yeah sure. and also, yeah. I mean, as you're saying, uh, uh, all that reading and research, uh, I hope, has made me much more sensitive to issues and concerns, mm. and uh, and avoiding language and stories and re- repeating tropes that might be harmful mm. uh, or misrepresent. Uh, a trans life yeah yeah is there any beyond this this one work and this one life that you're trying to capture would you like to 
capture more lives or would you like to expand the scope of what you're doing at all? Yeah. Uh, this is, um, this is, I guess it's become a, a gateway into other, other uh, areas of interest. And I think, you know, this notion of speculative biography and uh, how you write biography, memoir, autobiography has become, you know, a really interesting area. Uh, and I would hope that, uh, I, I think in writing Alison's story, there'll be elements of me through the book as mm-hmm. well. Um, and, you know, that prompts me to think, you know, is there more work that I can create down the track uh, of my own life that stems from my own life um, as a, I, I guess, you know, uh, you can't see me out there, listener, but I'm a queer person of colour. You've probably seen a photo. So that's, uh, that's another aspect of queer life that I'm really interested in mm-hmm. and perhaps writing about queer people of colour, about myself and my life. Um, but there are there are things along the way while I've uh, done uh, uh, the work on Alison's story that, you know, uh, it's like the, the proverbial rabbit hole. You could, t- you know, you go down one hole and it becomes a whole world as well. And yeah. I, I'll give you one example. Alison spent her life, uh, her last hospital um, stay at the old Prince Henry Hospital in Malabar, La Perouse, Malabar, which was, you know, 100 years ago started off life as the quarantine hotel because it was so close down to the water that they bring people up with leprosy or, you know, all, all kinds of diseases as they arrived in Australia and go straight to Prince Henry Hospital um, as, as a quarantine station of sorts. Uh, but Prince Henry became the overflow AIDS uh, ward uh, outside of St. Vincent's. St. Vincent's in Darlinghurst was the main kind of hub, I guess. But Prince Henry was another hospital that was took the overflow. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Alison left... Uh, lived her last weeks at Prince Henry before she went to a hospice to pass. And um, as part of my work, I took her eldest brother, Stephen, uh, there on a visit uh, a few weeks ago uh, and, you know, sat down with him there because he used to go and visit her and take her out in a wheelchair to look at over the beach uh, at the top of the cliff and things like that. And there's an amazing nurse's chapel there. I don't know if you've ever been. It's I a no. It's a kind of triangular Cape Cod kind of chapel mm. with this amazing view through stained glass windows out over the ocean. Right. And they used to go and sit in there and talk and uh, and he'd take her food and things like that. So this was 20 years ago, 20 odd years ago. So I took him back there and I thought that would absolutely provoke memories. Mm-hmm. And it did, uh, which was great. Very careful that it didn't be <laughs> evoke trauma. Mm. Um, but he, he, was, he was very glad to go back and visit. But the hospital has since closed down. This is a really long story and a side story. But the hospital has since closed down. Uh, and the AIDS ward has been torn down, and uh, and Stephen remembers it was completely empty around the hospital. Now it's you know all these apartment blocks. Of course, it's an ocean right. view. There would be apartment yeah. blocks now, but the hospital has been turned into a museum, hmm. and the museum's run by the nurses who used to work in the hospital. Right. Um, and we went into the museum uh, to look at the the couple of wards that they've kept as a museum kind of relic showpiece, and we got started chatting. Uh, to a couple of the volunteers who worked there. And they were so interested. They wanted 
to talk to us. They, they mm. said, oh, wow. Well, she would have been in the AIDS ward. It, that was over there and it doesn't exist anymore. It was torn down. And they took us to their little AIDS HIV exhibit in the museum. Mm. because, And they were so proud of what they'd done and it, the museum, but also the work they'd done as nurses. They said, yeah. you know, we treated, they were patients. We, we didn't discriminate. We, they were patients that we were there to look after. Mm. And, you know, and I suddenly thought, there's a whole history and a story there. Yeah. Prince Henry Hospital, the nurses, like, you know, yeah. no one knows about this place or has written about this place. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, yes, there's lots of opportunities and yeah. other projects that for me or for other people to write about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So all these touch points in Alison's mm. life that yeah, yeah could yeah. be other stories. Yeah. yeah. Or, yeah. or are other stories waiting to be, yes, that's <laughs> waiting right. to be captured. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's interesting what you say, because I, I think, uh, this is just my own, you know, anecdotal thought, uh, that there really is a strong, uh, physical places can be very evocative and, yeah. and you associate memories with place. And, you know, you can go back 20 years later and it's, mm. you know, you're just right back there. Mm. Uh, it must've been, uh, very moving yeah yeah it was i think uh, absolutely moving for Stephen, uh her brother uh and for me to be there with him mm. um but i think i think he was um you know he had a memory of the place and the reality of the place now it was so different mm. to that memory uh that i think he found that the hardest sure. uh, yeah. to come to terms with um uh, and yeah in terms of places like uh, uh Oxford Street in 1980s it was that was when I came out and that, that was when I was going clubbing and you know starting to live my life as a gay man uh, but so many of those places have gone now mm. they don't exist anymore those nightclubs are like patches exchange uh, uh, there are a few of them still exist but uh, are very different to what they were uh, you know a lot of the queer community bemoan the fact that Oxford Street's not what it was right. and of course things change you know you can't yeah. you can't stop things changing um, the one place where I would love to go and I've not been able to to identify where it was and I'm hoping in my interview someone will be able to identify it mm. is that um, you know uh, a lot of HIV AIDS uh, people uh, and this was before the medications allowed people to live you know mm. this was pre the the medications that allowed you to think that oh, I could survive this uh, a lot of people chose to, to pass away uh, and they would there were probably there weren't I don't think um, uh, official places that they could, mm. you know, that, that uh, it was a kind of very uh, voluntary euthanasia uh, in a very gentle way. Mm -hmm. And Alison went to a, a place somewhere on the central coast. And I, I'm not going to try and identify it on here because it probably shouldn't be identified at this uh, point. Um where th there was a hospice set up for people uh, who were going to pass from HIV AIDS mm -hmm. and they created an environment where they could do it in a home with a beautiful garden uh, and uh, with a lot of medication that enabled people to pass away peacefully. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I would love to find where that place was yeah, if right. it's possible to do so. Yeah. And so I, I assume this was an illegal operation. Is that why you're not really able to... Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it's still... A, a kind of illegal practice in yeah. certain states, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I didn't realize places like that yeah. existed. Mm. Yeah, 
So could I ask, why is it, uh, why is it important to you to find this place? I would like to find this place so that I can physically describe the location and the setting, if it still exists, and what I can extract from that uh, in order to do to describe the last moments of her life. Mm. Because the family went to visit her on her last day. They got a communication from the, the people who were running this, the hospice saying, you know, we're at... We're at the last moments. You need to come and visit her now if you want to see her. Uh, and when they came, went to visit her, she was already in a coma. Uh, but they they felt that she knew they were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want to incorporate those last moments and the family's visit in what I write. It seems the obvious and uh, most appropriate closure to what I'm writing about. Uh, so it would be... Uh, valuable for me to to physically see the 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 place, potentially take one of the family members with me if it's not going to be too too much of an ordeal for them. Uh, but even if it's just myself, yeah. Mm. And and again, it's it's a part of that HIV/AIDS history. Not many people know that these places existed. These kinds of places existed, and from my understanding, it was just kind of like a suburban home and garden. It wasn't like a, you know. Uh, a, a hospital kind of complex yeah. or anything like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that so that that'll be then that'll draw the story to a close. To a yeah. close. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, it gives me a a good segue into what is next. Uh, so you're working on this creative work, mm. uh, and then you have the smaller, more academic portion of the thesis. But are you trying? Uh, will you be presenting any of this maybe at conferences or are you working on anything else? Uh, what, what is next for you? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the wonders of doing a PhD is that you get these uh, other opportunities. Mm. As a writer, you know, it's a truism of writing that it's a very solitary activity. Writers sit in a room or at a desk and, uh, and uh, type away or scribble away. Uh, and they don't really get a, a public outing for their work until they start engaging with an editor or with a publisher uh, and then eventual publication to a wider audience. But doing a PhD, you get to rehearse a lot of what you're doing in different contexts. Mm. So through the stage presentations, through your interactions with your supervisor and colleagues, but then you know conference opportunities, speaking opportunities come up and these kinds of podcast opportunities <laughs> come up, which is great. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, yes, yeah, so there is uh, what's called an Australian Association of Writing Programs. So it's a, a collection of uh, schools across different universities across Australia that teach creative writing. And they come together annually. Uh, they were coming together annually until the pandemic got in the way. And there were a couple of years where it wasn't held or then it went online. But I think this is one of the first ones in November coming up where there will be an in-person conference in Canberra where people talk about their projects, people talk about teaching writing, creating writing. Mm. So I have a paper accepted to talk about my project at Brilliant. this conference. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Is this the first opportunity you'll have to kind of get some feedback from yeah, others? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In, in this context, yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I have my site set now. Also, there is uh, an international association of autobiography and biography that hold uh, regional and international conferences as well. Okay. And that becomes, that's a much more, from my reading and looking at, 
it's, uh, it tells me uh, much more theoretical frameworks around what create what forms autobiography what are the, the you know what are the cutting edge practices in autobiography and th- this notion of fragments is very much uh, 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 of current discussion i guess so mm. i'm uh, because of that in particular i'm very interested in, if i can to get to that international uh, uh conference as well next year sometime um and um you know talking about fragments uh the, the fact that you know I'm writing a book that's a biography, but that, you know, the current thinking around this kind of uh, methods, methodology and thinking around the theorizing of biography and autobiography is that the whole discipline, I guess, has splintered, fractured, because whereas, you know, 50 years ago, even 10, 20 years ago, autobiography biography were things you wrote as books or Mm. as uh, works of writing or literature people are creating biography and autobiography in all different formats now tiktok basically every video you put up is an aspect of autobiography or anything you post on social media Mm. or zines and colleges collages uh are now uh, uh, elements of autobiography that people are creating and putting out in the world. Mm. Um, so I, I think that's a lot more of the focus of that kind of conference, but I'm hoping my work, even though it's a little more traditional in terms of its actual contents, might find a home in that conference as yeah. well. Yeah. If anything, it's just now with TikTok, you have more fragments to work with. Yes, 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 absolutely. <laughs> doing I pity one. the researchers of the future. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Now you yeah. have to, yeah, you have... You have more content in a way. You cover more of someone's life, but in smaller snippets. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and you're trying to piece it all together. <laughs> yeah. 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 Hmm. And, and I guess, you know, all those different platforms also allow you to different pre- present different aspects of yourself as well. That's right. What you might put on Facebook or on a blog might be different to what you put on TikTok. And, you yeah. know, you, you, they, they might not be look like the same person or yeah. represent, uh, present like the same person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And and it's so performative and curated Absolutely. most often. Absolutely. Uh that, you know, uh do you know what is actually making somebody tick and what's happening in their life? Probably not, if yeah. that's your only resource. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Interesting questions that future writers will have to answer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, the last question that I like to ask everybody is what is something outside of the PhD in your academic work? that you're excited about at the moment? I am very involved in and very excited, but also very nervous at this moment in time, which is late September 2023, about the voice referendum. Mm. Uh, I live outside of Sydney in a small country town, and I've become uh, very involved in the local campaign for Yes 23. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Uh, both excited and despairing uh, of the current uh, discourse around Yes23 at the moment, but still, you know, doing our market stalls and doing our street stalls and letterboxing and things like that in the hope that Yes23 will come to pass. Um, Yeah, and I guess that's also a reflection of that uh, late burgeoning activist element in me yeah, as well. Of course. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you know, I I am sixty one, uh, and I feel like um, uh, at this point in my life, it's there are things that I need to um, 
to become involved in or lose the opportunity to become involved in or mm. thing, uh, things that I need to express. Otherwise, I will not have the opportunity to do so. Right. And so I've tried to become involved in these kind of things that I'm very passionate about. Mm, and I feel very passionate about Yes23. Can you just, admittedly, most of my listeners at the moment are in Australia, but yeah. for the few internationals who may not know what the voice referendum is, could you just give us a quick... Yes, so, so Australia's undergoing this... Uh, constitutional referendum we need a referendum to change any aspect of our constitution and belatedly after 230 years or so uh, the, the the it will be put to the vote to the people of Australia that the First Nations people of this country are officially recognized in the constitution and secondly that uh, a body be created an advisory body be created that allows First Nations representatives to advise the government of the day on matters that affect their lively, uh, livelihoods, their lives, uh, and, and so on. Mm. Yeah, Absolutely. I, I wish that I was a citizen because I would vote yes. Uh, yes. But unfortunately, I'm not able to vote in Australia. Yeah. And, uh, and to a large extent, I feel like, you know, this should be a given. Like, you know, yeah. why are we having a vote? Let's just say <laughs> yes. But it has caused enormous division uh, already yeah. in this country and division that's been fanned by uh, anti uh, yes, uh, advocates, and mm. it's uh, you know very much the right wing, left wing political kind of divide that's uh, doing this, uh, and it's at this moment in time, it's it's a question mark whether this referendum will deliver a yes outcome or not. Mm. Mm. Is this uh, because just a couple of years ago we had a plebiscite for marriage equality? Uh, but that was, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm asking you because I, I'm not 100% sure, <laughs> that was not non-binding, right? That was basically a glorified survey of the people about what that's they wanted. Right, that's right. Whereas yeah. this is different to that. It is, it is. So this vote is a change to the Constitution, which is, the, you know, the fi- founding document of Australia, yeah. uh, our mission statement, I guess, uh, as a country. The plebiscite was a change to parliamentary law. Mm. Uh uh, and it, it was a uh, a neat solution by a conservative government at the time to placate conservatives uh, who did not want a change to the law and who did not believe that the Australian population supported a change to the marriage laws to allow same-sex marriages. And so the neat solution was, well, let's do a plebiscite, let's survey, basically, it's a glorified mm. survey of the whole population uh, to see, to, to actually determine what people think. Mm. And it, it came out as 60-40. I think 60 people supported the change and hence the government could wave that statistic back to their conservative colleagues and say, Australia wants this, so mm. let's do it. Yeah. yeah, whereas this would actually enact change the uh, like yeah this would be law. this would yeah, be a binding ju- yeah. binding thing for all uh, future governments yeah. until a next referendum is called if any foolhardy government in the future wanted to change what mm. was now hopefully becoming enshrined yeah. yeah the the australian political system uh as someone coming in from the outside uh it's very confusing <laughs> to me. I'm still, I've been here, this is my 13th or 14th year in Australia, yeah. and I'm still trying to work it out. And I, yeah. I, my wife is Australian, and so she's the one I'm always going to and saying, yeah. why, 
why don't they just do this? Why? Yeah. That was my concern with the plebiscite. Yeah. It just seemed like this is your job. Yeah. That's what everyone so, said. That's your job. Why are we telling you how to do yeah. your job? Are we yeah. going to do a survey for every decision that you make? It's yeah, yeah, just, exactly, just exactly. Yeah. And hey. this one, like you said, it just seems obvious. Mm. So just do it. But, yeah, but yeah. yeah, you know, it's a you know, it is the constitution. So yeah. they need to go through this process to make this change, and I guess that's fair enough. But mm. again, I wish it was uh, it was a bipartisan thing, but that both sides of politics were saying we both believe it's a yes, mm. uh, and there's no argument. And so, certainly, the last referendum in 1967 about First Nations people, where for the first time First Nations people were allowed to vote in elections, that was the the the, the gist of the 67 referendum, had bipartisan support. Mm. And so that passed. Right. Uh, and unfortunately, this current referendum doesn't have bipartisan support. So that makes it much shakier, I think. Right. Is that the, dif- the distinction of why it has to go, why it has to be voted upon? If it's No, no. But either oh, okay. way, it has to be voted okay. on. Gotcha. But, but, but not to... having the bipartisan support means yeah. there's a lot more division in the community, yeah, right. which means that the vote is less certain, mm. I guess. I was saying to I was saying to my wife, uh, and I'm, I'm a little bit out of my depth here, but it seems to me like in this particular instance, having the compulsory voting is actually going to work against the outcome because mm. the yes voters are very passionate about this yep. and would go yep. even if it wasn't compulsory, yep. uh, whereas maybe... a People who are uninformed, let's yep. to, to give the benefit of the doubt, uninformed yeah. and maybe more easily swayed, yeah, yeah, have to turn up, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and might be more likely to perhaps to yeah. vote no, yeah. yeah. I guess, yeah. W- w- when is the referendum? October fourteenth. Okay, yeah, so right. it's getting close. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, like I said, I would vote yes if I could, but unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, I can't. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting, and that's I, I feel like that that brings us full circle, as you were saying about the the activism that's kind of swelled up inside of you, and and you have this, uh, you were presented with this opportunity to to do something yep. with that spirit. Yes. <laughs> in, yes. A, in addition to your work, but that yep. also I reckon the spirit of it anyway informs your work. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's brilliant. Uh. Thank you very much for making the time to, to sit down and talk with me. I think your project is uh, is amazing. I, I really liked hearing about it. Uh, best of luck to you as you go through the final stages and, and maybe continue to expand this work. Yeah, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been great to be here.